Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Research on human beings saves countless lives, but has at times harmed the participants. To what degree, then, should government regulate science and how? The horrors of Nazi concentration camp experiments and the egregious Tuskegee syphilis study led the U.S. government in 1974 to establish research ethics committees, known as institutional review boards, to oversee research on humans. Critics now say that IRBs are impeding important science. In his new book, The Ethics Police, The Struggle to Make Human Research Safe, Dr. Robert Klitzman examines these watchdogs and looks at the dilemmas they face. He says these committees reflect many of the tensions of our time concerning science and human values, individual freedom, government control, and industry greed. And he says it's important that we all understand these dilemmas and possible solutions. He quotes the ancient Roman writer Juvenal, who once asked, Who will guard the guards themselves? The answer, Dr. Klitzman says, is we all have a role to play. The book is out from Oxford University Press. As I mentioned, it's The Ethics Police, The Struggle to Make Human Research Safe. And I believe we have Dr. Klitzman on the line. Uh, Dr. Klitzman, welcome back to Access Utah. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here with you. We talked with you, um, I think it was last year, uh, about your previous uh, book, one of your previous books, Am I My Genes, um, which uh, looked at uh, the fact that we can now... Uh, sequence our own uh, genome, and uh, and do we want to know these things, some of the dilemmas there? Very interesting yes, discussion. exactly. So uh, to begin this discussion, uh, I'd like to begin where you began in the book. Um, you're a newly minted physician, and your father's dying, and uh, then you, you encountered a dilemma right there. Yes, exactly. So my father at 78 developed leukemia, and which is rising numbers of white blood cells. And unfortunately, the doctor said there was no treatment available at the time. This was a few years ago. But he said there's an experimental chemotherapy we could try. It'll be an experiment. And uh, there's a, without it, he would live three months. And with it, there's a 50% chance to live three to 18 months. And my father didn't know what to do. He was a hard realist. Uh, my mother, he had survived the depression. My mother said, don't do it. Let nature take its course. And I, as a newly minted doctor, was full of hope for science and said, you should try it, it'll be good, science does wonderful things, and he decided to do it, and the next three months were terrible for him. He was nauseous all the time, and he said, if this is what my life is, I don't want it, and he died three months later to the day, and the doctor afterwards said, well, the experiment worked. The number of white blood cells had, in fact, increased, but the doctor said the uh, the patient died. And I was horrified because I felt, had I made the wrong decision? Had I pushed him too much? Uh, and I suddenly realized how hard it is for patients and their families who face these issues all the time about whether to be on experimental drugs. I felt the doctor could have explained things better if the doctor had said there's a 50% chance this will do nothing for him, uh, as opposed to being very upbeat about it. Uh, we may not have said yes. And I just made me realize how hard it is for patients to undergo experiments. And I have done research and have been happy to get patients in my studies. And I suddenly thought, wait a second, this is a very complicated area. Uh, science does many wonderful things for us. We have great drugs that help many of us in many ways. But at times it goes too far. And at times, uh, particularly as uh, more drug companies are scrambling around harder to find drugs and uh, there's more... Uh, money involved in the system, and drug companies are charging $80,000 per patient for certain new drugs. I think we, we all need to, to think more seriously about a lot of these issues. Uh, 
And there's a, this is exacerbated, I think, by uh, sort of a culture gap, right, between patients and, and doctors. Um, and you say in the book, you you might even have been influenced by, you know, you've been immersed in this world of silence, uh, science. So you're a you're a new doctor, and maybe you were biased a little bit toward, uh, you know, the, the science here, w- wanting to, yes, to find exactly. find out. Yeah, uh, yes, exactly. There's, uh, you know, we as researchers think research is great and we should do it, and yet when we think about it, there's a lot of treatments that there'll be a treatment that works, and we want to encourage uh, patients to be on new treatments and to develop new treatments to make them better, and uh, there have been controversies where patients have died in certain experiments, uh, where the standard treatment may have helped them more than getting the new experimental thing. And the problem is that there is, for instance, a bill before the Senate, uh, the U.S. Senate at the moment, the uh, uh, Cures for the 21st Century Act, that would get rid of informed consent for a lot of studies, for certain studies. Uh, and the pharmaceutical industry likes this because it wants to develop new drugs and make a lot of money off them. But I think we all need to think twice and make sure that uh, while we advance science, which is great, that we also make sure we're protecting people's values. And there's a lot of people who, unfortunately, sometimes get turned into human guinea pigs, and we've got to make sure that that's reduced as much as we can. Yeah. By the way, I like the the cover. It's uh, the sort of outlined figures of a man and a woman. They're in a Petri dish. And that this, yes, exactly this right. illustrates and what I we're should, talking about here. Yeah, and I should say also these issues extend more further in ways that affect all of us. So Facebook, for instance, did an experiment on 700,000 users uh, recently, so almost a million people. Half of them, uh, Facebook only gave positive posts from their friends, uh, and the other half, uh, 350,000, a third of a million people, only got negative posts from their friends. And Facebook was trying to alter these users' moves. And in fact, Facebook found in this experiment that those users who only got positive posts were more likely to post only positive things. And those, you know, my my sister just got married, I bought a new dog, and, and those users who got only negative posts were more likely to post only negative things. So again, no one, these individuals, who could be any of us on Facebook, those of us who use Facebook, uh, for instance, uh, do not know they're part of an experiment. And I think these are questions. In some ways, we're all increasingly in Petri dishes in various ways in our lives. And I think we you know, need to be aware of that and know about that and think about whether we need more protection. And as this becomes more and more complex and these ethical dilemmas become, uh, you know, head-scratching, um, I don't know, there, there's the temptation to just sort of withdraw and say, oh, there's an... Well, I think a lot of people don't even know there's an institutional review board, but I think we have a vague notion there's somebody out there who's hopefully watching out and, and let them worry about it. Yes, exactly right. So we've created these research ethics committees known as institutional review boards or IRBs that were meant to protect us, and they were created 40 years ago. Uh, but science has changed, the world has changed, and uh, they operate in secret. They generally do not want anyone to study them or uh, know much about them, and a big problem. I think we need to open the doors and look at a lot of the problems, which are big problems, big issues of how much do we want to oversee science or not. Uh, and a lot of people think, well, there's some bureaucracy dealing with it, but it's just a bunch of men and women who are often going on gut feelings, and they often get things wrong. So there are researchers who now say the pendulum has swung too far. As you mentioned in the beginning, uh, uh, these IRBs now block a lot of important studies. 
uh, on the one hand. And on the other hand, they let some studies go through that shouldn't. And so they're basically uh, a bunch of amateurs. There's no requirements to be on an IRB. Anyone could be on one of these committees saying, you know, what kind of experimental treatments get given to what patients uh, or not. And I think, again, we need to raise the standards and make sure this is done as well as it can be and have more expertise involved. And I think all these things are things we need to do and we should all be concerned about because especially also with genetics coming down the pike, where soon there'll be, uh, when we go to our doctor's offices, there may be lots of genetic information on us that we may want to know or not. And again, we need people to oversee the research involved in these areas. I wonder if we, well. Yes, yes, uh, definitely. Um, I wonder if we go back to the, you know, the, the Nazi experiments where all, you know, uh, what I want to do and what you do in some articles and in the book uh, you take it from what's clearly egregious and, well, beyond egregious, and, and then you bring it forward to what's happening today, which could be seen as questionable, but some people don't. So so the, the Nazi experiments are obviously, you know, beyond the pale. It cut off limbs, tried to reattach them, changed the color of the eyes. It, it just uh, talk to me a little bit about those. Yeah, so all these issues, no one thought of much about these issues at all until the Nazis uh, conducted really horrific experiments, and I should add the Japanese did as well and, uh, when they invaded China. Uh, but they wanted to see, for instance, how long people could survive in the cold. So they took a bunch of people in concentration camps and they put them in the cold and measured how long it took for them to die. Or The research was all that helps, quote, soldiers on the front, uh, but it wasn't well done often, and it really is not good science, to say the least, let alone there was no informed consent. You had no choice whether or not you're going to be in these experiments. Uh, after the war, the Nuremberg Tribunal came up with the first uh, attempt to come up with guidelines for research on people, which were very good, and said you need informed consent. And yet the U.S. government uh, did not follow the guidelines uh, in research it conducted in Guatemala, for instance, in the 50s. It, it uh, wanted... It, sent prostitutes with syphilis into prisons to try to infect prisoners with syphilis. Uh, it, it was a Tuskegee syphilis study where men in, uh, mostly African-American men in the South uh, who were semi-illiterate, uh, who had syphilis, uh, were part of a study, the goal of which was to see how syphilis slowly took over the body. The problem was that when penicillin became available as an effective definitive treatment after World War II, the researchers funded by the U.S. government decided not to tell the men about the treatment or to offer it to them because it would, quote, destroy the experiment. Yet this is clearly grossly unethical, uh, and as a result of this, the uh, Congress passed the National Research Act that developed IRBs. So there have been horrific experiments, and the problem is that we uh, know informed consent is important, but there's this area, a whole area has gotten very, very little attention, uh, and uh Science has grown. So the, the amount of money spent on scientific research has mushroomed. It's, uh, between drug companies and the NIH, uh, it, a, a major portion of the U.S. economy involves research on people. Uh, and uh, my book is really a call to say, look, we need to wake up and take this area seriously and look at it and make sure we're doing the right thing. Uh, and uh, the, uh, unfortunately, there's still cases in which informed consent is not very good. Uh, the consent forms now often are 40 pages, and people don't know what they're signing, they just sign it. I should say it's similar to what many of us face when we go on the Internet and we are asked to, quote, scroll down and click I accept. 
through various websites, and we just scroll down. It, it, it doesn't say read it and understand, but many of us increasingly just have to accept uh, giving consent to things without thinking about it, and there's no real uh, protection of people, subjects, or anyone else. And I think, again, the book raises all these issues to say we need to be increasingly careful about these issues in our society today. Yeah, I, I always get a little queasy. I, you know, I, I don't want to take time to read those things, but I click I accept, and you know that I. I wonder if I've now sold my soul to Bill Gates, you know. But uh, uh, so, so that's that's sort of low stakes, but higher stakes, of course, is. Uh, tell me about uh, the the increasing percentage of these studies are, are conducted overseas, right? Uh, not not in this yeah. country, and and for a lot of the subjects are not very well educated, you shove a 40-page informed consent form in front of their face, and they may or may not even be able to read it. Yes, exactly. So what's happened is that most uh, drug studies now are, are paid for by uh, industry, by drug companies, not by the NIH, and most of that, those studies are now done overseas. Just as it's cheaper to make our cell phones in China or Vietnam rather than here in the United States, so too for doing drug studies, if I have a new drug, it's easier to conduct a study in South Africa or uh, Poland or Ukraine or you know Peru uh, than it is to do it in the United States. Yet, as a result, when you go into other countries like that, uh, people often uh, have much lower levels of education, really don't understand what they're getting into. Uh, and again, this is a major area that needs more attention. We don't even know much of the problem, kind of problems that emerge there, but a lot of problems do. There's a lot of misunderstanding, uh, and again, uh, people need to be protected. This is what we learned from Nuremberg, from Tuskegee, and we've been more lax about it than we than we should be, and unfortunately, patients have died in many cases. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to look at the trade-off. Um, uh, you know, the Nazi doctors, they had some, you know, trade-offs. They were, talking, they were trying to save their own soldiers uh, obviously you know it's beyond the pale and you know your your mind reels um uh, but uh, as we come down to today i'm quoting dr klitzman here from an op-ed piece uh, drug companies now pay thousands of dollars to doctors to switch patients from generic medications to more expensive experimental drugs that may work less well and some people see nazi crimes as morally evil but view these experiments as merely business practices that may be a bit unfair we'll take a look at that and other ethical and moral dilemmas the book is the ethics police the struggle to make human research safe my guest is dr robert klitzman more following the break this is state of the arts Every home should have a work of original art, according to Alice Merrill Horn, an early Utah legislator who ran for office in 1898 on a platform of advancing the arts. Representative Horn wrote legislation that organized the nation's first state arts council, established a statewide art competition, and appropriated state funds for a collection of work by Utah artists that continues to this day. She encouraged schoolchildren from around the state to contribute nickels and dimes from their milk money to buy art for public places such as schools and libraries. That early investment has paid off. Utah is now home to more than 9,000 professional artists, and Utah's art galleries are a $159 million industry. State of the Arts is brought to you by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts in Logan, Utah, with a cooperative gallery featuring the work of more than 30 participating artists. Details at cachearts.org. 
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is Dr. Robert Klitzman. He's a medical doctor, a professor of psychology, uh, psychi- psychiatry, I should say, at the College of Physicians and Surgeons and the Joseph Mailman School of Public Health, director of the Masters of Bioethics program at Columbia University. He's authored or co-authored over 100 articles and seven books, including Am I My Genes? And When Doctors Become Patients. The latest book is The Ethics Police, question mark, The Struggle to Make Human Research Safe. Research on human beings saves countless lives, but at times is harm participants. And Dr. Klitzman asks, to what degree then should government regulate science and how? He, sh- he says we should all be invested in these issues. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Perhaps you have an experience that you'd like to share or question or comment. We'd love to have you join the program. Uh, I wonder, uh, this fits in right now only tangentially, but it, it was so striking. This, uh, this struck me as kind of this culture gap. Tell me about your first patient. You write about this in the book. My first patient, uh, yeah, so I remember when I was uh, an intern, uh, I uh, was told to go talk to my first patient on the list. I went to this room, and the uh, woman was having breakfast, cutting a grapefruit. We had a nice conversation. I uh, went out in the hall, and my resident stopped me, my supervisor, and said, what have you been up to? And I said, I just spoke to Mrs. So-and-so. He said, um, she's dead. Don't waste your time with the dead. I said, what do you mean she's dead? I just spoke with her. He said, no, no, she's dead. Uh, and I was totally confused. I thought maybe he had a different patient in mind. And then I realized what he was saying was, she was do not resuscitate. You were not going to resuscitate her. She had cancer uh, in the event of cardiac arrest or respiratory failure. And so we shouldn't waste our time with her. And I was horrified uh, because uh, to me she was a very nice person. She was as alive as you or I. Uh, uh, and uh, I was struck by how, you know, the hospital uh, and the system, which gives very little time for doctors to have with any one patient, meant that you had to triage patients in your mind. And if someone was do not resuscitate, we were going to write them off. Uh, and I thought, uh, this is horrific. And so I got very interested in how we make these decisions and uh, how medicine doctors are trained often to blind themselves to a lot of the ethical and moral issues that we face. And so that's what led me to eventually write the books you mentioned, one book, When Doctors Become Patients, and see how doctors often, when they become patients, become much more aware of these issues uh, and these deep moral issues, spiritual issues in care, et cetera. And then, uh, again, we have new technologies around genetics, so uh, the, my last book, uh, which we spoke on on your show about previously, uh, I'm very grateful uh, to have had the chance to do so. Uh, uh, Am I my genes? A struggle uh, concerning uh, fate and family secrets in the age of genetic testing. Again, I was struck by there. Whereas doctors see genetic tests is very matter of fact in black and white. Either I have a gene for breast cancer or I don't. For instance. Patients see these as very complicated issues to deal with. Um, there's a lot of misunderstanding, and I think we in medicine often are blind to some of the moral distress that patients feel and that we may feel. Uh, and similarly, I went on to write this book. Again, I realized it's a whole area concerning experiment that whereas we in medicine see it as a very matter-of-fact, just sign the form, all we care about is getting the patient's signature, 
I think a very complicated issue is whether to risk your life to be on a study that may not help you. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of doctors push patients more than they should to be in studies. Uh, as you mentioned, drug companies will pay doctors thousands of dollars per patient to take patients who are doing okay on current meds uh, to switch those patients to a new experimental medication that may not work as well. Uh, and doctors get thousands of dollars to switch these patients and, and often do so. And again, I think we need to be you know, to monitor this more. And in some cases, some of these practices, I think we shouldn't continue. Uh, and again, we sort of think, oh, someone's looking out over this, uh, and they're not always, they're not doing very well. And, and the basic problem is that the amount of scientific research is mushroomed. It, uh, the budget, is, uh, the amount of money spent on research has gone up 40 times plus in the last few decades, uh, much more than any other sector of the economy, just about, um, except maybe computers. Uh, and, uh, and yet we haven't kept up with this. We haven't kept up in terms of what kind of policy, what kind of ethical discussions we should be having. This is what I try to teach in the, uh, the Masters of Bioethics program, which we have both uh, face-to-face classes for as well as online classes that students all over the country take. Uh, but again, this is a whole area that we need to pay much more attention to going forward. It's easy to think this is all business and let the business take over, but there's a lot of moral issues that we need to think about and talk about, and I think it's great that you're uh, bring these issues up on your show. So what are what are the uh, tensions then? It's all, you know, the more you get into this, the more you see it is shades of gray. And, and one of your suggestions is that the members of the institutional review boards, probably all of us, ought to have some training in moral reasoning and ethics. What, what would the outline of that uh, look like? Yes, yeah, so I know anyone could be on these committees. They don't need to have any expertise. They don't need to know any of the ethics involved necessarily, other than just the regulations. But so, uh, so I think these, there need to be government-wide regulations, changes, saying that there needs to be requirements. These people should be who are on these boards need to be tested to make sure they understand these issues. Right now, these institutional review boards often disagree. Some say for a study looks good, some say no, some say change this, some say change that. There needs to be much more uniformity. Uh, they need to have more people from the public involved, frankly. Uh, right now they'll have one person called a community member, is what they call them, who uh, uh, often is overwhelmed. It's often a woman of color, frankly, in a room full of white docs and, and uh, uh, in white coats, and they often feel intimidated to speak up. Uh, and there's a lot of big issues about if I'm doing an experiment, uh, say we have a new kind of artificial blood, and uh, we're going to have uh, people in emergencies, some of them will give the artificial blood to. I mean, how do we decide if, you know, we want to make sure communities understand that, that they agree or not agree? I frankly think that it's wrong that we should all be forced to click I accept without understanding what we're accepting. Uh, the uh, It's been easy to say, well, in the name of science and progress, people don't understand what they're getting themselves into, who cares, uh, we'll just go on. I, I think that's unacceptable. Uh, and uh, I think, for instance, the bill before Congress, the bill before the Senate, saying that for certain kinds of studies there doesn't need to be informed consent, the House of Representatives passed that, I think, uh, before the Senate, and I think that's uh, something that we should not allow, that there should be informed consent uh, in, in drug studies uh, to make sure that people understand uh, what they're getting themselves into. I think we owe it to people. Um, so again, I think that this is a discussion that uh, we all need to have. It's, 
uh, as I said, particularly as uh, there are biobanks that are being formed at almost every med- major academic medical center in the country. They're going to have lots of genetic information on all of us to do various studies. And it's not really clear uh, I don't want my uh, information there, or if I only want certain studies, should I be allowed to have those rights? I think this, there needs to be a public discussion to understand a lot of these complicated issues. So, you know, most largely, uh, you know, we like science, but we also value, we don't want capitalism in making money to completely rule how far science can go. Uh, we need to, at times, have some limits in discussion, I think, and we've sort of ignored all this too much. Some of the you bring up some of these uh, dilemmas, and one is often brought up on the other side. So, you know, a majority maybe of critics of these boards uh, say you're slowing down the science. Um, but on the other hand, uh, others say, and we we just saw this, I think, with uh, with the Ebola outbreak. If experimental drugs prove effective, should they be made readily available to poor populations, many of whom in, lack uh, healthcare? Yeah, so I think the, 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 there are problems on both sides. I think the answer is we need to make these, uh, have a better discussion, have more robust discussions, have more training, make us more aware of these ethical and moral issues. I think uh, within, as healthcare rises, there's more ethical issues. I think people used to get their moral compass from going to church or synagogue or temple, etc., and by and large, Americans go to church less than they used to. A lot of people do, and uh, I think that, uh, nonetheless, we need to raise the understanding of ethical issues as they affect science and health care. Uh, medical schools often ignore this as an area more than they should, for instance, uh, and I think uh, you know, bringing more attention to these issues uh, could help us in all kinds of ways. As you say, often it takes an epidemic or a scandal, the case of Ebola, for instance, to bring attention to uh, the fact that we don't know how to answer a lot of these issues, you know, and I think, uh, you know, people in universities, but also from the public, need to decide if, if someone, there was a big outcry, of course, when a woman, for instance, a nurse who would work with Ebola patients but was completely fine, flew back to New Jersey about a year ago, uh, and she was uh, confined. Uh, uh, she wasn't, uh, her freedoms were taken away, uh, and, uh, uh you know, Governor Christie in New Jersey looked tough as a result. But again, I think to understand that these are complex risks and benefits, um, this is an important area, and uh, voters and the public at large and everyone is a, a patient or a family member of a patient or will be needs to understand these issues. What are we signing up for and what? how do we make sure that we're protected while also advancing science? I'm wondering... Um and I keep coming back to these conversations between patients and doctors, but but that is an important part of this, isn't it? Um, I, I keep thinking about the doctor who encouraged your father to to, to take this experimental treatment. Yes, and, and so the, we know that, for instance, there was a, uh, another study recently caused a big controversy uh, called the support study that gave different levels of oxygen to uh, different uh, infants who were born premature, and if there's too high a level of oxygen, there may be blindness, but if there's too low a level, uh, the uh, patient may, the, the baby may die. And so some of the informed consent forms, so the study randomized uh, babies, premature babies, to get one or the other level, but the informed consent said the purpose of the study was to reduce blindness and death, and it didn't clarify that it would be one in one arm or the other, and 
uh, you're either going to have an increased risk of death or an increased risk of blindness, uh, as an example. And similarly, you mentioned I, I, I wrote in a previous book called When Doctors Become Patients. And there, for instance, one surgeon, elderly surgeon, told me that he had been a surgeon for 40 years, but the night before he went into surgery uh, as a patient, his surgeon said to him, you know, there's a 5% chance you may die tomorrow in the operating room. And the surgeon said to me, uh, you know, I've been a surgeon for 40 years, and I couldn't sleep that night. And only afterwards did I realize that my surgeon could have said to me instead, you know, there's a 95% chance that everything should go okay tomorrow. Uh, and he said, you know, I've never realized that those two bits of information that are statistically the same, 5% chance you may die, 95% chance you may live, are so different emotionally for the patient. And I think part of this is that we need to train doctors to be better at communicating information to patients uh, and to realize what it's like to be on the other side. Uh, and there's two cultures, as you say. There's the world of medicine and the world of patients. And it's easier for doctors to operate without really thinking about what patients are feeling. We want doctors to have detached concern, to be concerned but also detached. And the problem is that particularly as medicine becomes more of a business, as doctors have less time with each patient, it's easier for doctors to just be detached. Uh, and we want to make sure that we have doctors who are also concerned and think about what it's like for patients who are in experimental treatments, treatments that may not work, that are facing various risks and benefits, that we make sure we communicate that well and easier for doctors to emphasize all the benefits uh, and not the risks. And so, for instance, the doctor with my father saying there's a 50% chance he may live longer uh, without really going into the, the fact that there's a 50% chance he, this may even hurt him. Uh, I think those kinds of discussions, we as patients and patients' families need to be more tuned to and to ask questions about, and uh, and doctors, we need to train doctors and other healthcare providers to be more sensitive to the patient side as well. So this is what I at Columbia and, and doctors in Utah and elsewhere, there's groups of bioethicists and doctors concerned about these issues, but I think we're still a minority voice, uh, mm. and uh, I think we all need to pay more attention to these issues. What about on the other side of the equation, the patient? If, if I'm going in and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to talk to my doctor, he's going to tell me about maybe an experimental therapy I could take. Um, what, what's my responsibility? How, how do I get informed? You know, I can't, I can't get a whole, can't go to medical school, you know, and cram that into the time I have before I go to my doctor. What, and you're, you're telling us that uh, it's everybody's responsibility to, to bone up on these issues. I guess you read your book, uh, obviously, but uh, what, how, how, how can we get informed? Well, I think, you know, obviously, the, the onus of responsibility is on the doctor. I mean, because patients don't even know what to ask. But patients should make sure that they understand the risks and benefits of what they're getting involved with. And mo most importantly, patients should not be afraid to ask questions. Uh, uh, as you said, uh, in my previous, one of my previous books, When Doctors Become Patients, a number of doctors said to me that when they were in the hospital, their doctor would come by and stand in the doorway of the hospital room and wave their hands and say, everything okay? And the doctor who was the patient would say, yeah, everything's fine. And afterwards they think, well, wait a second, everything's not fine. Why did I say that? And they'd say, well, I realize I want to please my doctor. I don't want to complain to my doctor. I don't want him to make him or her feel bad that I'm still sick, I'm not getting better. And so these doctors said to me, I suddenly realized that if I'm trying to please my doctor and not communicate information, that means that my patients must be trying to please me and not communicate information. And I think that's correct. I think that we, uh, that uh, patients should not be afraid to ask questions. 
uh, to make sure they understand things. Uh, there are good websites, luckily, online. Be careful because sometimes there's a lot of junk online. There's a lot of, uh, you know, garbage information. But there are always also good information. There are reputable sites, uh, academic medical schools or the, the medical centers, uh, the, um, the NIH or the Mayo Clinic, for instance, or Hopkins or other universities of good information sites for patients. Uh, and to make sure we understand, if we have questions, uh, we should ask. Don't feel, especially with experimental treatments, we should understand the risks and the benefits. Uh, uh, if we're seeing private docs who are telling us to try new medicines rather than the ones that are working, we should just be careful and know to ask the right questions. doesn't mean that it's wrong to do by any means, but just, you know, understand. Um, uh, and uh, I think those are important things we can all do. Uh, and not feel we have to just understand if it's mumbo-jumbo in a form. Mm-hmm. Let's take another break. When we come back, more with uh, Dr. Robert Klitzman. His book is The Ethics Police, The Struggle to Make Human Research Safe. We'll talk more about this. Um, and uh, Dr. Klitzman, in our last segment, I'd like to bring up your next book. I've been reading an yeah. interview that you, you're already working on your next book. It's called Designer Babies which the interviewer here says that's a really creepy growth industry, which I think we, we might agree with that. Yeah. Uh, we can yeah. talk about ethical dilemmas there. More following the break. What is a subject that you are passionate about? What do you know more about than most? Utah Public Radio wants you to share your knowledge and become a source for the Utah Public Insight Network, a new collaborative effort between UPR and the Salt Lake Tribune. Information you share could help our reporters create more in-depth stories on the things that you care about or more meaningful discussion on our flagship program, Access Utah. Become a source today. Join UPIN. For more information, visit us online at upr.org. Next time on Marketplace, this. I'm tumbling around on the bottom of the ocean, you know, hitting the bottom of the sand and the coral and before I can get up out of the water, you know, again, you know. That's kind of what the whole thing felt like. And how it's actually about an economic phenomenon. I'm Kai Rizdal. Gentrification and its after effects. Our series, York and Fig, it's from APM. Thursday night at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about the struggle to make human research safe. That's the subtitle of the new book by Dr. Robert Klitzman. The title is The Ethics Police, question mark, on the end there. Um, and he's talking about institutional review boards. 1974, the U.S. government, in response to the uh, Tuskegee syphilis study and, and other uh, abuses, established research ethics committees. They're known as institutional review boards. But uh, Dr. Klitzman quotes the Roman writer Juvenal, who will guard the guards themselves? And he says the answer is we all have a role to play. He's trying to educate us on this so we can play that role well. Uh, You can join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraccess at gmail.com. And uh, here's an email from uh, Russ. He says, I'm a member of USU's IRB. One of the things I'd like your guests to respond to is the trend among IRBs to seek accreditation through the Association for Accreditation of Human Research Protection Programs. This practice established best practices that significantly improve human research protections. I'd also say that the majority of members of the IRB are scientists 
and the institution makes sure that these individuals are chosen for their knowledge of exactly the type of research we do here at Utah State University. All members of the IRB receive training, and our IRB provides ongoing in-service training on best practices and regulations. That's uh, Russ uh, Price, who is on the USU IRB. So very valuable there, Russ. Thanks uh, for doing that. So uh, he says um, the, the trend among IRBs is to seek accreditation. Uh, that's, I guess you would say, it's, it's a good step? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, and thank you, Russ, for the question. Two great questions. So first let me clarify, there are about 5,000 IRBs in the United States. We're not even sure how many. Uh, and they vary immensely. So there are some that are at fine academic institutions that are doing a good job often, uh, and then there are others that are, are not. And the problem is even at major institutions, at Johns Hopkins, at Duke, there have been uh, University of Minnesota, uh, there have been shutdowns of the IRB or scandals, uh, shutdowns of all research at several universities over the years has occurred uh, because uh, often uh, things are missed. So even well-intentioned people uh, can sometimes uh, miss important things about studies. There was a the book goes into various examples of that. Recently, for instance, uh, uh, University of Minnesota has been having problems because there was a study in which a uh, young uh, man with schizophrenia, unfortunately, agreed to be in a study, really, it seems like, didn't understand it and killed himself. And his mother had called the researchers to say, look, he shouldn't be in the study. He doesn't really understand it. He's suicidal. And looks like the, uh, the research, I don't know all the details, but there have been a few reports about it that uh, researchers uh, didn't pay heed to that as much as they perhaps should have, and he did kill himself. So again, there are uh, problems that can occur, and I think uh, we need to understand these issues more. Um, so the, there is, there has been an effort to accredit IRBs, but accreditation, the current system, looks only at the form of the decision-making. In other words, how many members uh, are there? Are there enough members? Uh, how, uh, uh, you know, are how long are the, uh, or what is in the standard operating procedures. Uh, but uh, there's no accreditation process that looks at the content of the decision. So, for instance, there are studies that show, for instance, that when, they, uh, when the researchers have asked the IRB chairs at many institutions, do you think that an allergy skin test is minimum risk or not? Uh, the researcher, the, the chairs of IRBs are all over the place. Some say it's totally minimal risk, some say it's a little more than minimal risk, some say it's much more than that, significantly more than that, uh, you know, is a blood draw uh, more than minimal risk. And again, variations. So there shouldn't be variations on things like that. In other words, there needs to be more consensus in the content of the decisions, not just uh, do you have the standard operating procedures, uh, but, you know, what the decisions are. And I think that's an area that's not been uh, uh, addressed. Uh, in accreditation and and needs to be. And I think there needs to be, uh, you know, another part of this discussion, I should say, is that because there are discrepancies between IRBs, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, in December came out with recommendations that there be centralized IRBs. And I think those are both good and bad. And uh, President Obama uh, came out uh, a few years ago with recommendations that are going to be a more final form release soon, I understand, uh, also advocating central IRBs and some changes. And again, I think there are efforts to change the process. Uh, but again, uh, what I found uh, is that uh, uh, there have been very few studies looking at how these committees actually make decisions, which is what I then set out to do. Uh, no one's really looked at a lot of these issues. Um, again, I think we need to understand more what the, the 
uh, lived experiences of doctors and patients and researchers and IRB members are uh, to understand what they struggle with and how often there are uh, differences in opinions and decisions uh, that involve deep moral issues that there's not always consensus on. I think opening this discussion up is really what we need to do. Uh, what about the second point? Uh, Russ says <clears throat> that the majority of the members of the IRB, at least at USU, are scientists, uh, and I think it's probably true uh, in most IRBs. He says the institution makes sure these individuals are chosen for their knowledge of exactly the type of research we do at uh, USU. Yes, yeah, so I think, uh, again, there's two issues. You want expertise in science and understanding of the ethical issues. And unfortunately, uh, right now, any uh, scientist could be a member and have no understanding or training of the ethical issues. And I think that is a problem. Some do, uh, some obtain it, but there are also people who told me, who are members, who said, well, I was volunteered for the IRB. I said, what do you mean? They said, well, when I became a faculty member at my university, the chairman of my department said, well, we need someone on the IRB, and everyone here is on a committee, so that'll be your committee. And the person said, well, what's an IRB? Uh, and uh, often there's very little orientation for new members. They say, uh, see one, do one, teach one. I went to a meeting, I saw what other people were doing, and then I kind of did it. Uh, so again, it needs to be a much more uh, uh, systematic process. Uh, there needs to be uh, ethics training. Uh, and I think also the notion that there's always there's also another problem is that right now researchers can't challenge what an IRB says. So if people in the IRB agree, well, this is it, this is you can't do this, or you need to change this and that, uh, there's no recourse for the researcher to say, uh, you know, I disagree with that. I think that actually this is going to benefit a lot of people. Uh, right now, you can only appeal to your own IRB, and I think we need a system where there could be an external appeals process where you could say, you know, I disagree with what my IRB said. And a lot of researchers are very angry at IRBs. They uh, researchers commonly call IRBs the ethics police, uh, which is why I, I gave the book the title I did. Now, I want to be careful to say I do not think they are the ethics police. I think that they're trying to do good, and that's why I put a question mark at the end. But the fact that researchers see them as the ethics police uh, is important. It suggests that uh, what they're doing is not liked by a lot of researchers, and we need to understand that and see can we make the system better and the answer is, I think we definitely can make the system better, and we need to do so. Uh, I think uh, I want to get on to the to this uh, very important uh, designer babies uh, uh, issue. What's the what's the biggest thing that that you would suggest? What's what's your top bullet point in in terms of uh, improving the system? Uh, for, for IRBs or designer uh, uh, babies? Uh, IRBs, IRBs. Oh, so I think that there needs to be. Uh, External appeals, as I said, I think there needs to be consensus effort, a real effort at having consensus in the content of decisions. Uh, is this consent form too long or not? Right now, whatever you think is what your local IRB does, and they're going to vary as a result. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, so there needs to be more training. There needs to be consensus. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, President Obama and the NIH are recommending central IRBs, but there are a lot of details to be worked out there. I think there's a move to have private IRB, for-profit IRBs, and they're growing for-profit IRBs, and I think that's problematic in a way because the main incentive may be uh, making money for a venture capital company that owns the IRB rather than protecting subjects. So again, I think there needs to be those kinds of reforms as well. So uh, tell me about Designer Babies. This is your next book. Yes. So uh, 
thank you. The, uh, there is a huge industry of assisted reproductive technology now where people are buying and selling eggs, sperm, buying embryos, uh, and we're now screening embryos for various conditions as well as gender. Some, a lot of people go to doctors and say, I only want a particular from certain cultural groups. I only want a boy, and the doctor will give them a boy. Uh, and uh, we now also have uh, the ability to look at the entire genome of the fetus and sequence it. And a concern is that increasing the, uh, increasingly there may be uh, genes found for different traits, and people may say, well, I only want to not only do I only want a boy, which is what we regularly do now, or many cases do now, but people may say, well, I want a blonde-haired, blue-eyed baby, uh, and I want it to have these genes for height and intelligence. I don't want it to have those genes. And so uh, there's also uh, gene editing that's going on among embryos and, uh, at the research level now in China. Uh, and again, I think we're, again, all these technologies are great for getting rid of diseases and for they have great uh, upsides and potential, but we need to be very careful that we're not uh, entering into the realm of eugenics, for instance. I think uh, one concern is that uh, now people could see embryos for, say, the breast cancer gene to make sure their children don't have breast cancer or certain other conditions. And in the future, it may be the case that if you can afford it, these are still often expensive procedures, uh, wealthy people will be able to buy their ways out of certain diseases. So certain diseases that now affect everyone, like breast cancer, are unfortunately equal opportunity diseases, so to speak. Uh, in the future, it will be only poor people, for instance, who may have these diseases. And I think we, as a society, need to think about, is this the world we want to be in? Should we allow people to be screening embryos? And uh, unfortunately, uh, this is a relatively unregulated industry. Uh, uh, and I think, again, we need to think about, do there need to be better guidelines, more careful guidelines? Uh, there are also agencies that... Uh, uh, have young women donate their eggs, sell their eggs for ten thousand dollars or less, uh, and uh, sometimes these agencies then turn around and sell them for much more expensive prices. There's a lawsuit going on about whether or not there should be a limit on the, the upward price. I think there should be such a limit. That right now, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine says uh, eggs should not be compensated. Egg donors should not be compensated more than ten thousand dollars. But there are people who say, "Well, I want to, you know, an Ivy League." Six foot two, eight plus student from Harvard, and I'm willing to who's head of the or her, you know, her sports team or lacrosse team, whatever, and I'm willing to pay fifty thousand or hundred thousand. And right now we uh, don't allow that, but there's a lawsuit that's saying that we should allow that. I, I think that's wrong. But again, I think uh, the fact that we have these technologies uh, uh, present a lot of wonderful things, but also some questions. Um, there's a company in California that uh, makes and sells embryos to people. It takes a guy and gets his sperm. A woman gets her eggs, makes a bunch of embryos, and sells them to couples. And uh, they don't track, uh, uh, they don't have any contact. Kids will never know who they're real or be able to find out who their biological parents were. Uh, and it may be that, you know, uh, there are 30 kids from the same set of biological parents living in the same town. What if they get married? Uh, again, none of this is being tracked or regulated, and I think we need to have better guidelines to avoid some potential problems. Yeah, it's <laughs> it is amazing we're, we're we're speeding well into what used to be not long ago science fiction, and and as you're yes, saying exactly. that that our you know 
the ethics of this is perhaps lagging a bit. You're, you're trying to get us to speed up. I think that's, that's, that's a bottom line. Uh, the book yeah, is exactly. The Ethics Police, The Struggle to Make Human Research Safe. It's out from Oxford University Press. Dr. Robert Klitzman is uh, our guest. Uh, he is uh, director of the Masters of Bioethics program at Columbia University, among other titles, and author of several other books, including Am I My Genes? You can uh, go to our website and uh, pull up our conversation from a few months ago on that subject. Dr. Klitzman, a pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Coming up on Monday, we'll talk about Planned Parenthood. It's uh, much in the news, of course. Uh, Governor Herbert recently made a statement on it. We'll have uh, a representative from Planned Parenthood, and we're going to be asking you, if you availed yourself of the services, what do you think about this uh, controversy, specifically as it relates to uh, Utah and, of course, the national scene as well? That's our subject uh, for Monday. And we hope you'll join us uh, tomorrow for um, Behind the Headlines. Thanks for listening today. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn how Utah's booming tourism industry grew by attracting travelers with creature comforts that rivaled the scenery. First this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. In the early 20th century, Utah's exceptional landscape drew Americans seeking to connect with nature and untamed wilderness. Initially, they came by stagecoach and train, but by the mid-1900s, better roads and personal automobiles allowed people to travel independently to scenic destinations like national parks and monuments. The influx of tourists created the need for accommodation, so new motels began appearing throughout southern Utah. At first, the motels served as simple rest stops for tourists coming to see the natural beauty of Utah's parks. A 1957 travel guide lists several motels in gateway towns such as Cedar City, Moab, and St. George at an average price of $6.50 per night. The guide touts Utah as the center of scenic America and urges visitors to come for an unforgettable vacation. But as competition grew, motels began advertising themselves as standalone destinations with all the comforts and conveniences of home. In turn, tourists began to expect those conveniences. For example, one of the major complaints from tourists about a new information center in Zion National Park was the annoying lack of hamburgers and soft drinks. So motels began to use those conveniences to lure travelers. In 1963, the Canyonlands Motel opened in remote Mexican Hat, Utah. Its brochure encouraged tourists to visit ancient ruins in the adjacent Navajo Reservation and pointed them to nearby state and national parks. But its advertising focused just as heavily on the motel's complete travel facilities and accommodations, including wall-to-wall carpeting, air conditioning and heat, a shower and tub combination, and sliding doors to an outdoor swimming pool. The need to accommodate tourists has only increased in subsequent years. Utah hosts millions of visitors who spend billions of dollars each year. They still vacation here to enjoy the natural beauty, but expect to return at night to an air-conditioned motel room. For the modern traveler, comfort and convenience might be just as important as the scenery. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by Heidi Orchard. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank.
Hey, I'm Candy Palmiter. She's been sharing your music obsessions for more than 20 years. Next time on Q, Pitchfork senior editor Jessica Hopper talks about her new book, The First Collection of Criticism by a Living Female Rock Critic. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Thursday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. The policemen sit me down and they said, well, your life was also threatened. We feel that you should not perform on stage tonight. This is Friday night. I'm headlining the Glastonbury Festival. There's like 100,000 people. No one's going to like shoot me on the Glastonbury stage under the peace sign. Join us next time for the Moth Radio Hour. True stories told live from the public radio exchange, PRX.org. Saturday night at 6 on Utah Public Radio. Next time you look up at the stars, think about this. Inside you are the remains of a stellar explosion. You are made of stardust. And without the stars, there wouldn't be us. I'm Guy Raz, the wonders of the universe and the people who still look up every night. Next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Sunday afternoon at 3 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Science at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Thank you for listening to Access Utah. The time now is 10 o'clock.